Well, if I ask you if you know what your priorities are, how would you answer that? I know what my priorities are. I've got to get by with life, you know? I've got to make sure the kids are fed and ready for school and that there's, there's breakfast and there's lunch and there's dinner. I've got to, you know, make sure things around the house are fixed. I've got to take care of stuff with my job. For some of us, when you ask what your priorities are and whether you're, you know, what are your priorities, you go, life, getting, getting through the week, that's my priority. <clears throat> the truth is, it's not hard to tell what your priorities are. Um, every single one of us has the same 168 hours in our week. Um, just, you happen to be productive, you might get more done with your 168 hours than I do. But here's a question, what do you do with your free time? Well, I don't have any free time. You may not have as much as some, but everybody has some free time. So it's the, um, the, the, the danger of doing some math publicly. Um, let's look at our 168 hours a week. Let's be a little generous and say, if you have 168 hours a week, and, and, and let's be a little bit on the generous side and say eight hours a night for sleep, it's 56 hours a week. Once you subtract that out, you've got 112 hours left. Let's put in some time for, you know, traditional work week. Some of you are going, yeah, I wish I only worked 40 hours a week. Just play along. Subtract out 40 hours, you got 72 hours left. And then let's throw, in, um, let's throw in 35 hours, you know, three hours a day for food, two hours a day for family, five hours a day for each of those things. That brings you down. Once you've taken out some of your major responsibilities, sleeping, working, eating, and family, there's 37 hours left. What do you do with that? And then how many of you would have the audacity to say that your priorities are God's priorities? You know, if God had 37 hours left in his week, he would use them exactly like I do. No, he would not be on Facebook for 32 of those seven hours. Just wouldn't happen. We've been talking as we've walked through Matthew 17 and Matthew 18, talking about God's priorities for his people. And we continue here this morning in Matthew 18, which is, what I think one of the most beautiful chapters in all of Scripture, because it's here and nowhere else that God talks specifically about what his church is supposed to look like. It's supposed to have a steeple. Now, that's not what Jesus talks about when he talks about his church. He's talking about the relationship that people have with each other. And he talks a lot about the value of humility. So we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 18, just looking at a couple verses, verses uh, 10 through 14. And uh, we're going to see what he says here. This morning, if you don't happen to have uh, a copy of the scriptures with you, there's a pew Bible right in front of you, page 695. We'll put you exactly kind of where we are at. And one of the things that we'll do is we'll kind of backtrack here and give a quick summary of where we've, we've been over the last couple of weeks. But we've been talking about how God values humility. Now, the truth is, when you hear the word humility, humility is an attitude, but it is an attitude that has accompanying actions that, that come alongside it. Like, if you're humble, you act humble. Like, if you don't act humble, but you think you're humble, I hate to tell you, you're not humble. I mean, there's, the actions and the attitude kind of have to match up. So humility is largely an attitude that is uh, made uh, evident through certain actions. But there is a problem when we talk about humility. And it's a problem not just in the church, it's a problem in the world. And by nature... When we talk about human perspective, <clears throat> excuse me, as people, we tend to think that humility as a virtue is pretty pathetic. Hey, we're going to have humility classes tonight. Who wants to come? 
if I raise my hand, then I'm not being humble, you know? Um, men think, you know, I have to choose between being like a manly, manly man or being humble. No man wants to be humble. That sounds like weakness. You don't have to give up any of your manliness to be humble. You just need to, you understand your strength and you know how to hold it in check. Here's the problem. If humility is this virtue that nobody wants, Jesus has been telling us fairly consistently that while we think humility is pathetic, he says that it's praiseworthy. It's something that is very important. And even though you may not hear a lot of this virtue in the world, Jesus thinks that humility should characterize his people. As a matter of fact, a way to say this perhaps even more provocatively is that Jesus would say that humility is to be the birthmark of the people of God. Now, you know about birthmarks because like we go to plastic surgeons to get them removed. We don't want to look, we don't want to look um, unique. We want to be, you know, vanilla. You know, we don't want anything distinguishing us. But he says, you know what? Uh, Christian people should all have a birthmark if they're part of the family of God and that birthmark should be humility. So just like you can't hide a birthmark without doing something crazy, you should not be able to hide the humility that Jesus says should be a characteristic of the people of God. And so he has talked all about, as he talks about what it means to be the people of God, the church, the faith community, he's given us three ways that we can deny self over the last couple of weeks. You'll see uh, three passages kind of listed there. Uh, um, Matthew 17, 24 through 27 is the passage where Jesus is confronted about paying taxes. And very succinctly, he says, uh, Son of God, I'm exempt. I don't owe taxes. You know, does Jesus need to go on Obamacare? Does Jesus need to pay the IRS? No, he doesn't. But he is so humble that he doesn't want to do anything to offend non-believers. So you know what he does? He has a humility that does what he doesn't have to do. Jesus doesn't need to pay taxes. But he says, I'm going to pay taxes so that I, we keep the main thing the main thing. I don't need people worrying about my tax payment status. I'm just going to do it so that's not an issue anymore. A humility towards outsiders that does what it doesn't have to do. Chapter 18, verse 1, the disciples get into an argument. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus pulls a little boy in front of him and says, unless you uh, repent and turn and become like a child, humble like a child and trust and dependence, you'll never make it. So we are to be humble like a child. Humble towards outsiders so that we, don't, we do things that we don't have to do to go the extra mile. Humble like a child that is trusting, independent. And then in verses 6 through 9, we have a humility that seeks to not cause others to stumble. He talks about having a millstone tied around your neck and you being thrown into the depths of the sea instead of causing a little one to stumble. And so we're concerned about others' holiness. We're so humble about the example that we set. We don't want to do anything to get anybody else off track, but we're also very circumspect with sin in our own lives. And we're so humble about doing what Jesus says that he says we cut our hands off or we poke our eyes out to keep sin as far away from us as possible. Three really serious ways that Jesus has said, you can deny yourself and you can follow me by being humble. So the Bible clearly places a high value on humility. That's got to challenge our culture because everybody's living for their 15 minutes of fame. You know, there's a reason why you're on Facebook. You think everything that happens to you is so important and the entire world needs to think about it. They need to see it. They need to see how your vacation is better than their vacation. They need to see how your work experience is better than their work experience. We do not live in a humble culture. Not at all. And so today, under this umbrella of humility, we're going to see a new virtue that Jesus says should define God's people. Jesus, in repeated places throughout the New Testament, says that he came to seek and to save the lost. And so his people, 
who are called by his name, have the responsibility to develop a love that seeks others out as well. And friends, this is important. Because if over the history of humanity, if we could have just a scrolling announcement of all the people that have walked away from the faith and walked away from the church because they have not been sought out, the number of people that have left would be far greater than the number of people who have stayed. Let me just ask out of curiosity, how many of you had a bad church experience? Don't be afraid to raise your hand. I've had a bad experience, and it's not the current experience, okay? So we're good there. There's a lot of people have a bad church experience. You know what? Praise God, you're still here. Because there's a lot of people, when they raise their hand, they check out and they never come back in the door. And so the Bible says we've got to have a seeking heart that's looking out for people. And this is important. So we begin in verse uh, 10, where Jesus tells a little parable. And he says this, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father who is in heaven. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that Jesus has been on this theme of little ones. And he's not talking about you know, like chronological aged babies, toddlers, crawlers. He's talking about brand new baby disciples who, you know, uh, maybe kind of follow the analogy. These little baby disciples know how to crawl after Jesus, but they don't know how to walk with him yet. They are still on milk. They're not on meat. They are maybe, you know, standing, you know, for a few seconds in their following of Jesus, but they don't, know how to, they don't know how to pick up the cross and follow him just quite yet. They're baby disciples. And so last week he told us very carefully, don't do anything to hurt or harm them. Don't put any obstacles in their way. It's bad news. If you cause one of these little ones to stumble, you are accountable. And so now we're told even more, not just to not hurt them or to harm them or to put obstacles in their way. Now Jesus says something to make really clear what our obligation is to our brothers and sisters in a very specific way. And he says it in a way that um, is kind of offensive. He says, Jesus says that, if our humi- that our humility stinks if it never seeks. Our humility stinks if it never seeks. And he substantiates this in three ways that you'll see in your outline in your sermon bulletin. And the first way is what we just read in verse 10. Humility will not allow us to look down upon little ones. He says this, don't look down, don't despise these little ones. How in the world would Christians despise baby disciples, little ones? Well, we've already talked about that last week. We abuse our liberty. We do something that we know it's okay for us to do, but a baby Christian may not kind of understand the thought process behind what we do, what we do. And what we do in our abuse of our liberty causes them to stumble. That's how you look down upon. That's how you despise them, showing partiality. Um, Let's just say Mr. Moneybags decides to come and visit the church today. And he parks right out front in his Mercedes. And like everybody's lined up to meet Mr. Moneybags. Oh, Mr. Moneybags, have my seat. Oh, Mr. Moneybags, let me show you to the best Sunday school class that we've got. And I'll walk you there personally. Oh, Mr. Moneybags, let me take you out to lunch because you'll probably pick up the bill when we're all done. And then Mr. Humble and Disheveled comes walking in and he finds his seat by himself. And you know, hey, we've got Sunday school classes. Go find one. And nobody's going to ask him to go out to lunch after church because you'll, you'll probably have to pick up the bill. And if you show that kind of partiality, it's not good. What if Mr. Moneybags is here for show? He's trying to make business connections. He doesn't care a thing about the Lord. But Mr. Humble and Disheveled is here because he needs Jesus. The Bible says if you show that kind of partiality, it's not good. You are despising a little one. So partiality, abuse of liberty, withholding things for them, you know, ridiculing them, yeah. 
If you'd have been in Sunday school for the last 10 years, you wouldn't ask a stupid question like that in Bible study. Have you ever heard anybody say anything like that? Bless his heart. That's such a... I learned that answer in third grade Sunday school. Can't believe you'd ask something like that. Just being indifferent, just not caring. Sitting in a worship service with someone that you never take the opportunity to get to know. That's what's awesome about like a baseball game tonight. Because you know what? There's no pews at the baseball stadium. You are not going to be able to sit in your assigned pew when you go to a baseball game. You are not going to sit by the same people that you have to sit by. Heaven forbid you may sit by somebody different. And you may get to know a brother or sister in Christ in a way that you've been indifferent to getting to know him here because you sit in the same seat. We talk about this in our new members class. When you come to church, pray strategically about where you should sit. Why should you do that? Because most of you don't pray about where you're going to sit. And maybe if you always sit on this side of the church, maybe there's people on this side of the church you need to get to know. It's amazing. It's only like 30 feet, but it could be like a million miles. Sorry, that was free. That has nothing to do with Matthew 18. Sorry about that. Here's the thing. Um, We are in church. Okay, so we are pretty serious about our relationship with God. Most of you are here every week. Here's what happens, man. People who are serious about God, they kind of tend to look down their nose at people that aren't as serious. Well, I'm here four Sundays a month. He's only here one. Man, he asked that kind of question. (laughs) I figured that one out a long time ago. I got my perfect attendance pin right here. And so the, uh, Jesus, he actually says this. He talks about the parable of the four soils, and he gives four illustrations of, you know, rocky, thorny, of the path. And then there's only one example of good soil. And so for those of you that are good soil Christians, the temptation just naturally is to look down on the other three soils. Yeah. He let the birds take his seed. How ridiculous is that? And so there's just this natural reaction that we might think that we're better than people who aren't just like us. <clears throat> Here's the thing that's really hard, and I have to be really careful how I say this, because I am not, this is not in any way, shape, or form a compromise of truth. This is not it. Because you have all heard this phrase, we are to love the sinner, or we are to hate the sin, but love the sinner. Huh, y'all do good with that? Y'all ace in that exam? Man, I, I love me some sinners. When, when sinners see me coming, they think, man, it's like I'm getting a big old bro hug from, from him. Man, he's just loving on me. Now, here's the thing, man. When we don't have a relationship with somebody and we start talking about issues in their life without the relationship, it doesn't matter how much you think you love them. They don't think you love them at all. Because all they're hearing is the words that are coming out of your mouth about how you hate sin. And for them, they can't really distinguish their sin from the, who they are. And so when they hear condemnation... And you think you're calling out the sin but not calling out them. They don't make that distinction. They just think you're hating on them. As a matter of fact, I think it'd be better if we reverse those phrases, you know, hate the sin but love the sinner, and said, love the sinner. And then maybe God will give you the opportunity to hate the sin. But if you don't love the sinner, you will never get an effective opportunity to, to teach them why you hate the sin. They're just going to hear what you say, they're going to turn around, and they're not going to come back. And so this whole despising thing, take our moral stands, but do it with grace and do it with gentleness, do it with reverence, do it with respect. But I'm I'm fearful that we get so caught up with what we're denouncing that people don't even hear the message of love and grace that we have to give to them. And so we've got to be very careful how we do this. Not compromising truth, but being the loving people. Uh, Sinners happen to love Jesus. 
Religious people didn't think he was all that cool, but relig- uh, the, the non-religious people, they thought Jesus was great. So here's the thing that's crazy, is we have to learn the very hard art, hard art of not hating in others what we hate in ourselves. Listen, when it comes to hating the sin in your life, go for it with gusto. Knock yourself out with that. But when you start to hate the sin in other people, they don't know that you're not hating them. So hate the sin in yourself, but be real careful at applying the same standard. I understand you're not being a hypocrite. You're applying the same standard. They don't know that. So make sure you lead with love. Don't compromise truth. So why do we not look down on little ones? Jesus gives a really amazing rationale. He says, because uh, their angels stand before God. He's using royal court language where God is on his throne. And in the royal court, he has all these courtiers that happen to be angels who are just waiting for him to give them a command. And they are representing these little ones, these baby Christians are represented before the king. So basically, Jesus is saying, you are making the wrong enemies if you treat little ones with contempt because their angels are before my father in heaven. That's freaky. That's weird to think about. Now, to be clear, I don't think the Bible teaches guardian angels. So um, those of you, you want to wad up, you know, offering envelopes and throw them at me. The Bible never teaches that for every human being that has ever existed, there's a corresponding angel that was created because now with all the people that have died over world history, you've got a lot of unemployed angels. They're all on like God's welfare plan. So just think through it logically. It doesn't make sense. One angel for one person. But here's what does make sense. The word angelos, the word angel means messenger. And when we think about the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel is the good news. Who are the first people to proclaim the good news? The angels. Think about your little Christmas scene, the little nativity scene. Glory and excelsis Deo. I come bearing good tidings of great joy for all people. Angels have a very keen interest in evangelistic proclamation. And so when a little one goes from being a dead one to being a little one, and they have responded to that gospel message, their concern for gospel proclamation means that they have their eyes on these little ones. And heaven forbid you do anything to look down upon them. I don't know how, I don't know where this came from, but I I saw it in uh, some research. Somebody said it this way, that we should dare to care because angels bear their cares before the Father. And if you don't care, the angels care. We should not do anything to mess them up. Here's the point, is if God sends angelic protectors for his little ones, the last person they should need protected from is you. I mean, if you're just rough in your manner, you're discouraging in the way that you treat baby Christians, you're demeaning, you're despising, that's not why God sent his angels to protect them from other Christians. They should be loved and encouraged and nurtured and taken care of because God demonstrates a special loving care for his most fragile children, the little ones. He takes care of them. Verses 12 through 13 give us the the rest of the instruction. He says this, he says, what do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, I assure you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I think there's two corresponding truths that go along with what Jesus is trying to teach in this parable. And the first one is that beyond despising them, looking down upon them, he says that humility seeks never to lose sight of a little one. 
Humility seeks never to lose sight of a little one. And Jesus kind of gives us a, a beautiful picture. He pictures these baby Christians as straight sheep. They've wandered off. Something has happened. They don't want to be with the flock anymore. So what in the world would cause sheep in a flock to not be with the flock? Somebody in the flock has done something to discourage them, to dishearten them, and now they're kind of half-hearted in their their following of the shepherd. These are believers. Sometimes sheep are lost people. In Luke, they're lost people. But in Matthew, these are believers who have been discouraged and now are half-hearted in their devotion. They stray. The word for stray is the word planathe, which is where we get our English word planet, which means wandering one. People watch the skies and they know the stars. North Star always shows up where the North Star shows up. But what's that one? Because it was over there last time. What's this wandering one? It's one of our planets. It's where we get the word. And so disciples should, they should have a steady and constant walk. But these have wandered away from intimate fellowship with God and with his people. And friends, don't you know that those two always go together? If somebody tells me they love God, but they don't demonstrate any visible love for his people, they're lying. And we do them a disservice to make them think that they're telling the truth. You can't be friends with me if you don't like my wife. It's going to be a really weird kind of relationship. And Jesus would say the same thing. And if you don't like God's people, but you say that you love God, there's a problem. Rather, it's healthier to demonstrate your love for God by your love for his people. But they have wandered away from intimate fellowship with God and his people, and they've forsaken the pathway of consistent obedience. What's the church going to do about it? He says here that we keep our eye on the little ones. We, we, <clears throat> we make sure that we are uh, never losing sight of a little one. Have you ever lost sight of anything? Anybody ever lose their keys? How many of you like have a royal meltdown <laughs> if you lose something? I, I, don't, I don't lose things, except my mind. Um, <clears throat> I am a creature habit. I put my keys in the exact same place all the time. So like, if they're not there, someone has broken to our house, okay? Because that's, they, they are going to be where they're going to be. And um, I think it was Colin um, deposited my keys one day in the refrigerator. <laughs> so like, when I lose something, oh no. I mean, this is bad. I mean, sheets are coming off the bed. I'm unscrewing the drain in the shower. I mean, where in the world is this? Because, like, I didn't lose it. I mean, so I, I, where's the last place you remember having it? In my hand. I don't know where it is now. If I could remember where the last place was, I have no clue. It's gone. Scotty has beamed it up, and they have gone to another universe. And so when you lose sight of something, whatever it is, even something elemental and trivial like your keys, the temptation is to think it's gone forever. So I remember one time, I was four or five years old, and my mom did something I didn't like, so I ran away across the street. Because I wasn't allowed to cross the street. So our neighbor's yard had this big, huge live oak. So I went across the street. I could see my house. I could see my mom looking through the house for me. And I just kind of did one of these. Just watch my mom freak out. Why? Because even though she has eyes in the back of her head... When she can't see, something ain't right. You've ever lost sight of one of your kids? 
even if they're like riding their bike and they just kind of turn the corner before you, you kind of pump a little faster to get there because you want to have them in your sight. And if I thought I was in trouble before with mama, once I stepped out from the tree and go, here I am, she was not very happy to see me. It was worse for me in the end than it was in the beginning. And the Bible says in the same way that we would care for our own keys or our own kids, we should have that care for straying ones. And yet we treat everyone like a hyper-individual. Well, if that's what they want, we're going to let them have what they want. Do you really think people want to be disconnected? People who started out with Jesus want to be disconnected from Jesus? That's not true. They just want to be encouraged. They want to be cared for. They want to be loved. And so Jesus asks this rhetorical question. What do you think? If man has 100 sheep and 99 here, one goes astray. His question assumes a positive response. And this is completely antithetical to the way we think. Because like we do like this um, actuarial work. We do, you know, kind of like we figured out, well, 100 sheep, he has them for three years. The normal kind of, um, you know, uh, 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 decline would be, you know, maybe one sheep every three years. Hey, you know, this is perfectly acceptable loss. We're doing all right. We still got 99, just one. <clears throat> and so we go, hey, we're kind of ahead of the game. Our business plan is working. We've only lost one sheep. We got 99. That's not the way ancient Near Eastern folks would think. They, of course, go, this is a huge investment. I mean, this is like six months' salary here for the sheep. And so he assumes that we would go after them because if you don't, then you despise them. Not looking for them is despising them. So humility, rather than being completely indifferent, quickly and intensely looks out for the little ones. We don't look down. We never lose sight. And as a matter of fact, we even go beyond that. We look out for the little ones that stray. And what Jesus does here is he does something that our society, our culture doesn't do. He highlights the importance of the single individual. Instead of a society that says, get in line with what popular opinion is, get in line with what special interest groups think, this is highlighting the fact that what we think is statistically insignificant and unimportant the only reason it ends up that way is you're doing the wrong math because Jesus says you go for one. He's not implying that the 99 are left. I mean, listen, this is God doing the searching. He's like present everywhere. So it's not like the 99 are unguarded, but to follow the metaphor out, if he's got a flock of 100, he probably has under shepherds under him who take care of the flock while he takes it upon himself to go and to look. And what Jesus is trying to get us to do here is to avoid Cain's heresy. You know who Cain is? Killed his brother. And God said, hey, where's Abel? Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Well, of course you are. He's your brother. The same is true for us. It's a heresy for us to believe we are not responsible. We are. And the truth, and the, mo- the most ultimate truth that we have here in this passage is that humility causes us to seek the things that God seeks for His glory and for the good of others. Let me ask you a question. Does it glorify God for us to look for the straying ones? You betcha. Is it for the good of someone else for us to bring them home? Absolutely. You know what else? Is it good for you to develop this kind of heart? Absolutely, because it makes you more like Jesus. Instead... We are instructed to care for, to seek after, to bring them home because that's how God the Father pursues his wayward children. He may have some circumstance down the road. They may get cancer and it may make them remember from whence they have come and they return. 
But more often than not, the way that he wins people back is through his people. He can do it through circumstances, but that's usually because his people refuse to be obedient. Don't lose sight of the fact that God himself looks for them in this parable. He takes the initiative. So if as you are being obedient for his glory and for others' good, you go seeking and you happen to do the finding, guess why that is? Because God has been doing the searching well before you even got up out of your chair. We have a seeking God. He says that reclaiming leads to rejoicing. And the temptation in the church is like if somebody comes back, they've been gone for 10 years, we kind of bring them in the back door. We just kind of slide them into a Sunday school class. We don't say anything about it. The Bible says it's a cause for rejoicing. We don't bring them in the back door. We bring them in the front door. We help them understand where they went wrong and where we went wrong in our care for them. And we rejoice over the fact that God has used us to help reclaim one of his little ones. And I love this because in our kind of cost analysis, return on investment kind of mentality, we sit there and we go, we got the 99. The one's not a big deal. The 99 can never be an excuse for ignoring the one. Never. It can't. Because if one is lost, it is one too many, especially if the reason that they are lost is because of your discouragement, which may not be active, it may be passive. Because of your indifference, if someone doesn't come to church now, that should be one too many. It should be one too many. So where are the hearts that break for the things that God's heart breaks for? Where are the people who with their 37 hours of free time a week can say that one-tenth of that 37 hours is devoted to the kinds of things that God says are his priority? Friends, I live in the same world you do. It's busy. It's busy. There's stuff to do. There's bills to pay. The grass is growing. The weeds are up. Um, The car breaks down. There's all kinds of mess. But what do you do with the free time you have? Because I guarantee you, to make this just extraordinarily crystal clear, every single one of you knows somebody who you went to church with that doesn't go now. I'd be shocked if you didn't have somebody fit in that category. So what in the world are you doing to be a under-shepherd, serving under the great shepherd, manifesting his character? Instead of being indifferent, listen to this passage where Jesus, our Lord and Master, describes himself in John 10. 11 through 15. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired man, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters the sheep. This happens because he is a hired man and doesn't care about the sheep. But I, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep sheep. I guess the biggest question is, how much are you willing to be inconvenienced with the use of your free time to align your priorities with what God has for you? Let's pray. God, we pray that in our hearts, you help us to develop the right kind of passions. It is easy for us to say that we are your people. And it is very easy for us to not look like you as much as we should. So I pray that you use our word to break our hearts. That you help us to understand our responsibility for our brothers and sisters. Not just the ones that we enjoy sitting in church with on Sunday, but the ones that have strayed. The ones that perhaps through our influence 
in uh, the grace that you manifest through us, we could win back. And God, that may not seem as dramatic or as grandiose as seeing a non-believer come to Christ. But God, you tell us in your word it's significant. Because if we have been the cause, corporately, the church has been the cause of someone's discouragement and wandering, then we are responsible to bring them back. So God, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our hands for action, and help us to be your hands and feet. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.